You're just gonna stay angry at God for the rest of your Whether it's popular or not, we're seeking out what pleases the Lord. All right, friends, we are back this week with Keaton and part three of his story. So Keaton, welcome back. And why don't you walk us through um, a breathing exercise before we get started? Thank you. Thank you so much for having me again. Um, so yeah, the, these exercises are just really great tools that I've picked up along the way to help regulate your nervous system throughout the day. Um, you know, we, we don't make good decisions when we are emotional. And uh, if, if you do have toddlers, these exercises are also amazing to do with them, to teach them how to regulate their emotions. So today we're gonna switch it up and we're gonna do diaphragm breathing. Um, so anyone who was in church choir is familiar with the diaphragm, right? It's located down in the belly. Uh, and so for this one, if you're able to, what I, what I ask you to do is take both of your hands, put one hand on your chest and put one hand on your belly. And then what we're going to do is breathe at our own pace this time. And I just want you to focus on filling your belly on the inhale, inhale completely, very slowly. Hold that breath for however long feels comfortable and then completely exhale. So if you'd like to join me, I invite you to do this at your own pace. I'm gonna get started here. It's always amazing to me how how much that works. Yeah. Yeah. Thank yeah. you so much for um, walking us through that. So last week we talked about your time, <clears throat> excuse me, in Bible college. Um, and we left off that you had gotten three offers from different churches to come and uh, be an employee. Um, and that, you know, there was some some talk amongst, you know, your peers and the people in leadership when they found out what churches had given you offers. So why don't you walk us through um, part of that again, just to yeah. recap everything. Yeah, you know, um, so you, you put it well, I, I, out of Bible college, that was the first time I was really offered a full-time position. But like we talked about in the previous parts of my story, uh, you know, starting at a pretty young age, I was as a musician and then later on as a designer working with a, a lot of UPCI affiliated churches. Um, so I'd like to dive into just a few stories from, from that time in my life. Um, yeah, absolutely. So the first story, uh, not long after I started working for one particular church, um, and this church was, was very well known in the UPCI, uh, I was called into the office of the leader. And it turned out that someone who was in leadership at the Bible college, which I had attended, called my new boss and informed them that there had been a rumor that while I was a student at this Bible college, I had I'd had sex. And for anyone listening who, you know, has been out of the church for a while or who maybe was never a part of um, oneness Pentecostalism. This might sound very odd, but in that world, you know, sex is taken very seriously and especially premarital sex, right? Purity culture is, is a cornerstone of the culture. Right. And so, you know, 
now I'm in a position where my new boss is demanding that I divulge intimate details of what was my first sexual experience. And it's really important to understand that this is a man who heads one of the most prominent churches in the organization, who is you know, involved with the, one of the premier Bible schools. This is someone who could literally end this ministry career that I had only just started. I mean, it was, it was a terrifying moment in my life. And, yeah, it um, sounds it sounds very overwhelming. Um, oh, yeah. Like I can't I can't even imagine the pressure you must have felt in that moment to because you know you don't feel like you have the option to say I don't want to talk about that. It, you know they put you in a place where you feel like you have to say these things and you have to talk about what happened. Well, yeah, I mean that's a good point because I think what is what is most concerning about this particular story as I reflect back after you know years of, of separation is that I, I felt obligated to give him an answer, right? Like my, my entire life, I had been taught that the man of God, the pastor, was essentially an extension of God himself. Right. Uh, you know, the church that I grew up in, the pastor knew everyone's dirty laundry. And if you didn't tell him, someone else would tell him your dirty laundry, right? This was, this was routine behavior um, that I had been pretty indoctrinated to at this point for about 20 years. Sure. Yeah. It's definitely not out of the norm for the way that these churches conduct um, themselves okay. and their congregation. Yeah. And then when you compound that with already having years of sexual shame, starting from when I was a kid uh, at this particular moment, I, I was terrified, but I was also just completely ashamed of myself. And it's, it's so wild to look back at this now after having spent you know, over a decade in the business world where you know, the majority of us spend our entire lives, or at least most of them. This story alone, if it existed in the world I work in now, <laughs> would be a major lawsuit. Oh, <laughs> Just 100%. this story. But right. unfortunately, it just continued to get worse. Because that's what you are. Um, and I think it's really important to make that and, you know, that known that you were an employee, you were on, you know, you weren't just somebody attending, you were an employee of this church. And this was your boss. Yeah, I was, yeah, I had a salary. This was, I was a full-time employee. This, this was, this was my boss. Yeah. Wow. And so what ended up happening there? I mean, I did what any scared 19 or 20 year old would do. I, told as much of the truth as I could. And I filled in a lot of the details, right? Um, I was scared. And then time went on. I, like I said, I didn't, I didn't question this at the time. This wasn't like a, oh man, I just, I just dealt with some sexual harassment in the workplace. This was, you know, the man of God just put me in my place, which is so sad to say out loud. Um, yeah. And then shortly after that meeting, you know, I continued to work there at the church and someone on the pastoral team told me that that same person, that, that my boss uh, had historically refused to marry interracial couples in his church. And they defended this position as his legacy. That was the word that they used. And I will, I will never forget the, the use of the word legacy in such a racist and hateful context. Um, that was pretty shocking to me um, because that was something that I didn't see growing up. 
Right. And yeah, so I, I continued to work at the church and the cognitive, the cognitive dissonance continued to grow, right? Like I continued to see things that um, didn't line up with my belief system. So for example, I, I started to realize not just in this church, but in multiple churches that in private safe spaces, it was common for leaders to openly talk about how they didn't see holiness standards or like the rules that we were meant to follow as important. They would talk about skirts or they would talk about cutting hair or, you know, beards, whatever, jewelry. In fact, at one of these churches, several of the wives of leaders actually had secret pairs of pants that they kept hidden and that they would wear when they went on vacation. Obviously not when cameras were around. Um, right. And at the time, you know, I, I was young and naive and I was just looking for hope. And so that's how I saw this. I naively thought that this was a sign of hope for the future of the organization. Like we talked about in Bible college, I was, I was actively deconstructing my own beliefs on standards. And I thought that this could be the sign of a new generation, right? One where I could, I could be a bit more authentic myself. Right. But then these exact same leaders would not hesitate to chastise their congregations from the pulpit for making the exact same decisions that they were making. The, the, the leadership style was do as I say, not as I do. Um, completely hypocritical. Uh, and that was, that was really tough for me to stomach. Um, yeah. I mean, and it's tough to hear because I know for myself, like when I was, there was a picture circulating of me in jeans, you know, the, the world ended for me, you know, mm -hmm. I was ripped out of ministry and so these people um it's like the rules don't apply yeah yeah i mean that's a that's a great way to put it um, and unfortunately that is that is a theme um that at least i have seen in my own life right um, yeah and so How confusing. Yeah, so confusing so confusing um but again it goes back to that that base truth which isn't a truth it's a complete lie that we were taught that you know, the man of God is special, right? That, that they are called uniquely by God, that they speak directly to God um, and that we shouldn't question them. Right. Yeah. So, you know, another theme that I continue to see is that nepotism is just completely unchecked, right? Um, most of the churches I worked with, family of the pastor held primary leadership positions. And it sort of seems to be the expectation that when, when a pastor retires, God is going to impress upon that pastor that the right person to take over his ministry is either his son or his son-in-law. Right. And that makes the pastor able to level up to the role of bishop and stay on the church payroll. Like that is shockingly common in one this Pentecostal church is. Yes. And, and, and to make it clear, you worked at multiple churches. So this wasn't just one church you're saying this at. You were, you know, you were an extension of a lot of different churches throughout your time within the organization. Exactly. Yeah. And I think anyone listening is, is going to be familiar with this particular point because it just is so prevalent. Right. No, I agree with you 100%. It's very much a, uh, it's a family thing at the end of the day. Right. Yeah, exactly. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I guess the last point here, another trend that, that I saw, and then I also 
spoke to you know Bible college friends about when they started getting church jobs were the incentive structures, the way that you know as an employee of the church, um, as a minister at the church, that you were you would rise through the ranks and. You know, these incentive structures were not based on performance, like again, in the business world, they would be, um, but they were really incentivizing you to establish roots in that local church. So for example, one of the churches I worked at, um, it was known and it was told to me explicitly multiple times that the best way to get a raise was to either marry someone from the church, to buy a house near the church, or to have a kid in the church, right? Establish roots so that you can't go anywhere. And that's how, that's how you advance. Again, like from the business world perspective, it's just shocking to even think about that. Oh, a hundred percent. Because this isn't, you're not just volunteering your time. Um, and it also, you know, it raises all these red flags in me that it's like, they're make you know, they want to make sure you're committed to, what they're doing. Um, and, and, you know, once you buy a house, it's hard to leave. Once you're married into, you know, a family in the church, it's hard to leave. And they, you know, it feels like that's what they're trying to do is to make sure that they make it as difficult as possible for you to go anywhere, but they'll pay you a little more money as long as they've got you where they want you to be. I mean, another word for that is just control. Correct. Yeah. So I, um, I brought a lot of these concerns to, to the leader, to, to my boss. Um, I, I remember meeting with him in his office and trying to make the best case I could, although, you know, I was young and emotional and I, you know, I'm sure that the case I made, uh, wouldn't be as compelling as the case I'd make today, but, but you had also been through so much at this point within the organization. Um, so I, you know, I don't know how somebody wouldn't be emotional bringing all of these things that they're seeing, um, wanting to be a part, wanting to make it work. You know, I feel like anybody would be emotional bringing these issues that they're seeing that are really, you know, terrifying things to acknowledge that there's racism within the organization and that it's just a well-known thing and that nobody's, nobody's speaking out. Yeah. Yeah. That they want to have control of your life. You know, those are really hard things for anybody to acknowledge, let alone somebody, you know, who's fresh out of college, you know, trying to figure out all these things that are going on that you didn't know about before. Right. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, I, I made the case in the best way that I could. And the leader, the, my, my boss, I mean, he was visibly angry. I, I, I remember him explicitly saying with such a manipulative tone, never question your pastor. Like that was the response. He wasn't upset that the things I were, I were raising could be issues. He was upset that I questioned his absolute authority. Like looking back on this now, this is nothing short of narcissistic behavior. Right. Nothing short of it. And the, the thing is, this type of poor leadership, what I would go as far as to say is toxic leadership, was, was not an isolated problem. Anyone who worked in these churches knows about that rumor mill that I talked about in the last episode, right? We were all very aware of the gossip of what was happening in other churches, but no one ever did anything about it. And it was just known coming out of Bible college that 
if you're going to do church work, you are going to put up with hot-headed leaders. Like just, just in the past few months, there have been several former staff of UPCI churches who are publicly sharing their own stories of pastoral abuse. And sadly, they're doing it so that their names aren't disparaged by these leaders who have a lot of power. Uh, and all these stories, I mean, my story, their stories, a lot of the stories that we're hearing on this podcast, uh, these are all revealing what at the time we called the good old boy culture, right? It was like this, this world where pastors and ministers were, would just willfully defend each other, even in the face of like truly bad behavior. Right. And I've, I've even seen it recently. Somebody um, will, will hold off on names because it's not, it's not important. At the end of the day, this, this entire, um, this podcast, everything that we're doing is because it's an organization wide problem. Yeah. It's not church specific. It's not pastor, leader, anybody specific. It's an organizational problem throughout, not just UPC. You know, there's other organizations, ALJC, things like that, where they will get in the pulpit over the microphone and defend openly horrific behavior. Mm-hmm. And there's no accountability. There's no, hey, maybe things do need to change. Hey, maybe we should come together and address problems because they these are large staffs. I mean, just a staff of a church alone is quite a few people, but you add it all up to how many are like how many leaders are in the organization itself. And there's so, so many. Yeah. And nobody wants to stand up and say, Hey, this is, this is not accurate. This is, you know, this is not biblically accurate. This is not, you know, morally. Okay. This isn't legally. Okay. Why are we continuing to do these things? Right. Yeah, no, I mean, you're absolutely right. This is this is truly an organizational problem, right? So um, let's kind of recap the last three weeks that we've spent together talking about my story. Um, I think that really what we're talking about here are three cultural pillars or three building blocks of control um, that just need to be torn down. So in the first episode, we talked about fear tactics, and we started by you know, I told my story of rapture anxiety and how just lies about the end of the world during my childhood completely impacted my developing psychology. But there are many other fear tactics at play, right? For me, a later one was the fear of leaving, right? Le- uh, leaving the truth or being fooled by the enemy. I'd been told my entire childhood that if I left the Pentecostal church, that God would take away my talents and the things that I loved, right? That manifested itself as handcuffs that just kept me tied to an abusive environment. So that's the first building block, fear tactics. And then Mm -hmm. last week we talked about Bible college. And really what we're talking about there is the building block of controlling the narrative or controlling the influences on someone. So for me in Bible college, that manifested as just not acknowledging the history of our belief system or not being open to discussing alternative views of scripture, right? And there are many. But this can also manifest as blaming anything bad that happens on the enemy rather than having an open dialogue. Or worse, it can manifest as preachers claiming to be persecuted when difficult truths are revealed about them. I mean, even most recently, we've seen just pastors openly advising their members to not read further into the very real stories of abuse that are coming out of Oneness Pentecostal churches. That is just control that is controlling the narrative controlling the influence 
Right. So that, that's because, a, yeah, go ahead. No, I was just going to say, um, for anybody listening who may not be familiar, there's a lot of sexual assault claims um, coming out right now, very, you know, rampantly throughout quite a few prominent churches and, and the pastors and the leaders and the people, you know, higher up are saying, don't read, don't read into it. Don't look into it. Don't ask any questions. Just trust us. Yeah. I mean, even more explicitly, I have, I have recently watched sermons of prominent leaders in the UPC saying things like they will lie about you on Facebook and comparing active protesters, peaceful protesters who are concerned about the cover-ups of 10 allegations of sexual abuse being compared to the persecution of early Christians. That is, that is terrifying. That should scare any of us. Right. And then like this, how, like it, like it makes my stomach drop that wrong being called wrong is going to be compared to people losing their lives for just existing and for being prosecuted for wanting to, you know, believe in what they believe in. Yeah. Um, especially when you consider that all of these 10 allegations have come from very credible investigative journalism, right? Um, this is a form of accountability that church leaders are actively pushing away against. And like, that's a good segue into the third building block, which is what we're talking about now with my story of working in churches. And that is just a lack of accountability, both, both at the local pastor level and unfortunately at the organizational level, right? right? And this one can manifest itself in many ways. So at the local level, this could look like, don't question your pastor, like I was told. Another variation on this, what I've heard over and over again, is don't say anything bad about the church. It can look like nepotism, like we talked about. It can look like a lack of financial disclosure. What's happening with the tithing, right? Where is it going? It can look like a pastor requiring you to seek his approval to make any decisions for your own life, like pursuing a relationship or starting a new career or moving out of the area. And unfortunately, this lack of accountability often does look like church boards and overseers who are just stacked with friends of the pastor and who take no real action, right? This is antithetical to what an overseer is supposed to be. This doesn't, it, it's, it's shocking to see. And then at the organizational level, at like the national level, this can look like not training pastors and enforcing everything that we've already talked about. That is the organization's responsibility. It's a ministerial organization to keep its members accountable. Right? It right. can look like judicial procedures where friends of the accused ministers are operating behind closed doors. That's not a real accountability system. And then right. unfortunately, what we're seeing so much right now is it often looks like not enforcing mandatory reporting of sexual abuse that's happening within churches. This is required by law in most states. And even worse, we, we can see the organization honoring people, honoring pastors who fail to criminally report, who break the law. Like these cultural building blocks, these, these building blocks of control, they, they have to go before any meaningful change can happen. I agree a hundred percent. And to, to kind of piggyback on what you were saying, um, because some people who are listening are going to be, are going to be like, there's no way that this is real, but they, the pastoral staff, the leadership, they can tell, you, no, you can't move. 
They can tell you, no, you can't take that job. They can tell you, no, you cannot marry that person. And because of the indoctrination, you know, I know for myself, I ended up listening 90% of the time because I was afraid. I didn't want to lose my place in ministry. I didn't want to lose, you know, the protection of my covering and anointing that God had given me. Because that's what they tell you is if you don't listen, you're in rebellion. Mm -hmm. And with rebellion comes all these horrific things. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, you know, it's very controlling, very manipulative. And, you know, there's a, a manual that when I found it, it felt like I was breaking the law. Like it was, there it was when I Googled it, um, on how they handle, they, they have their own internal investigation when it comes to things, um, within the organization, people who are not trained or licensed or anything to handle any sort of investigation for anything legal are giving the, are given the opportunity to do so. And also people who aren't neutral, right? The investigation is, is carried out by fellow ministers with yes. the same titles. The, the, this, this literally could not happen in the public world. No, not, not for a second. Yeah. It's shocking. And like, Okay, I think this is a good moment to just talk about why accountability matters, even outside of the church. Because when I have these conversations with people, and and I I have a lot of these conversations, I'm very grateful to be able to still have a lot of friends in the Pentecostal church. Um, I like to bring, I like to sort of zoom out, because what we're really talking about here is is a human problem um, that's manifesting in the church. So I, I, I like to draw the parallel to the framers of our own constitution here in the United States, right? They went to very great, great lengths to create checks and balances throughout power in, in, our, in our country, right? They understood that any human being, regardless of who you are, regardless of your moral stature, is capable of being corrupted. It's just, it's just in our nature to take advantage of power. And how does, how does this happen? It's just self-deception, right? It is so easy to lie to ourselves. We've talked in in all episodes so far about confirmation bias. Our brains are just just actively looking for anything that can validate what we already believe to be true. That That is dangerous. And it means that we have to, in any organization that we care about, whether it's a business, church, government, doesn't matter, we have to have strong and proactive accountability systems. Proactive is really important here because if it's not proactive, we can't stop abuse before it happens. If it's not open and proactive, we are always playing a game of find the bad guy. And that is right. not, not a good place to be. No. And yeah, mean, yeah. Yeah, I mean, you talk about organizations. I mean, you could even go as far as, as to say, you know, sports organizations. I mean, there's so many different things that are, and, and, you know, and it's not a guessing game of when these accusations or things or anything comes up, it's written down. They've already prepared. They already know there's, you know, steps and things and consequences. And that's lacking within these church organizations that we're seeing is there is no accountability. There is no, you know, nothing ends up happening. There's right. not, or, there's nothing to be, not to be afraid of, but there's no real consequence at the end of the day for anything that happens other than maybe you'll lose your license, but guess what? You can still attend mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and nobody, nobody will ever know. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, 
not not just attend, but you don't need a license to have an active leadership role in a local church, right? Correct. Um, Correct. So it doesn't really do anything. Um, no. I mean, I think throughout history, we've seen over and over again that when an organization of human beings is comfortable not addressing difficult truths, when they refuse to keep those in power accountable, and when they promote fear as a motivator, there will be a group of people who take advantage of that system and they will take advantage of it for their own personal gain. Again, this is a, this is a just human nature problem. Of course. Yeah, definitely. And even if it's a small percent, that percent is still going to exist. Absolutely. Yeah. And if we're not actively building systems to stop it, it will grow and it will grow fast. Okay. My next question for you is what was your breaking point? <clears throat> Excuse me, because I feel like there are there are a couple I can name <laughs> that I feel like anybody anybody could choose from that would have been like, I would have walked, I would have stepped away, which is so easy to say looking back at it. You know, when you're not in that moment, you're not in that headspace. It's so easy to say, yeah, I definitely would have left years yeah. ago. So oh, what it's was so your, easy to say. Yeah. So what was your defining moment that you finally said, you know what, enough's enough? It was that meeting that I had with the leader. Um, I, you know, I, I laid a lot out and tried to get answers to that dissonance that was growing in my brain. And um, when I saw how that was handled, I realized that I needed to leave. And I didn't leave immediately. It took me a little while to figure out what to do. Um, but at 20 years old, I mean, I just felt completely trapped. And I knew that the only next step for me was to take a risk, right? And like, this is a huge risk. I I actively was thinking, if this means that I go to hell for leaving the truth, at this point in my life, I felt more comfortable taking that risk and just trying to find answers that I knew were morally right than staying and... (laughs) And dealing with all of this and just, you know, covering up my, my fears. So, um, yeah, so I, I'd been doing some design work for a new non-denominational church, which was started by a group of former ex-UPC people. Um, and they offered me an opportunity to move across the country and to help them start this, this new church. And uh, accepting that and leaving was still to this day possibly the the most difficult decision that I had ever made. Um, and really it was difficult because I'd spent 20 years in the church and I knew that leaving would mean losing all of my friends and potentially most of my family. And it did have that effect, right? Like it, it it's massively strained relationships with my family. For a while, some family members stopped talking to me. For years, I would receive messages saying that I was I was lost or I was fooled by the enemy. Um, when I tried to explain myself to family, I would hear, you know, I, I stay because I'd rather be safe than sorry, um, which I understood. Like, I understood that argument. And thankfully, yeah. most of those people have left. Um, so, yeah, yeah, you know, I lost a lot of friends. And truthfully, I burned a lot of those bridges willingly because I was so hurt by this point. Um, And in fact, shortly after leaving, one friend sent me a picture of a district event he was at. 
where my story of leaving to go help a non-denominational church led by former UPCers was used as a, a representation of how the enemy can fool anyone out of truth. Um, that was like a dagger. That was, you know, that was expected, but still hurt. And, you know. How incredibly disrespectful. Yeah, you know, but again, all of this was predictable, right? And it was, it was a known risk in leaving because we'd seen right. it happen to a million other people. And if we're being honest, most of us contributed to some of that pain. Oh yeah. And this is why the narrative that's told about people who leave, that they take the easy way out is just so hurtful because if I wanted to take the easy way out, I would have stayed in the church and suppressed my concerns and stopped pursuing answers to my questions. Right. Right. And leaving the church was an immensely painful experience, but like most abuse, I wouldn't realize just how painful it was until years later when I suffered a massive panic attack that ended up landing me in therapy. 